The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, we talk with Jordan Daneker about the little things that bring your outdoor spaces to life. He walks us through the process of how he discovers and builds the perfect outdoor space for you and your family. We explore the artful details used to put together plants, pools, pavilions, hardscapes, lighting, and more to yield a unique and quality environment. Jordan's obsession and passion started as a part-time job in 2008, and now he's on a mission to get North Carolina outside. He is a licensed North Carolina landscape and general contractor. He holds the designations from Interlocking Concrete Paver Institute for Concrete Pavers and the National Concrete Masonry Association for Segmented Retaining Walls. This is episode 35, Bringing Your Outdoor Spaces to Life with Jordan Daneker. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Jordan, how do you bring your outdoor space to life? In order to have a, a complete outdoor living space, the softscape should complement the hardscape. A lot of times you have these tight, big elements, these walls, these benches, these pavilions, and the softscape doesn't complement it. It doesn't, it doesn't allow it to live, and it just ends up feeling like a concrete paradise. That's a great way to say it. It's a big deal, man. Yeah, it's kind of like people build a pond. It's like a bunch of stacked rock around a rubber liner. It has no life to it, like you were saying. Oh, man, that's so funny you said that. Like, there's this guy in my market, like, area, and he's a nice guy. And, like, he'll throw a pond liner down and throw some boulders around it. It just looks like somebody dumped it out of the back of the dump truck and, yeah. and put a garden hose at the top. People love it. They're like, I don't understand that. I'm like, oh, crap. Like, that does not look anything natural. But people pay for it. It's crazy. You, you probably see stuff like that oh, all yeah, the time. Yeah, that's the way most of them are done around here. From the design perspective, what do you try to do when you're designing a hardscape project, a softscape project, or the comprehensive project? How does your mindset on that? Yeah, so, and I can talk about it the way our whole process works if you want. Sure, do that. So let's say that I come out to a consultation to your house, right? Well, you know, I like to know about your lifestyle. You know, I, I like to, to get to know all my clients. I joke and say, I want to be friends by the end of the consultation and I want to be family by the end of the project. When you're designing an outdoor living space, it's just as big of as an investment as your house because you're going to spend a lot of time out there if done correctly. When I start to draw, obviously everybody goes right to budget and budget is critical. Don't get me wrong, but you could have an unlimited budget and the space is massive and doesn't fit your property and your lifestyle and your family. You see these big spaces and I'm building one right now. It's massive. And it's a great space. Don't get me wrong, but it's two people living there. Do they need a space like that? Now their property is massive, so it made sense. But would I build a space like that on a half acre lot? I try to think about the intimacy, how many they're going to entertain. 
And then I take and put my drone in the air and I take all angle shots of the property. What's the entry points? What's the exit points? How are they going to get to the property? For instance, do their guests always come in the house or do they come in the side? Because I want the guests to be invited to the outdoor space. Most of the time you use your outdoor space, but when you do have people over, you want them to feel led to come back there, right? So I'll think about walkways, how they're going to get there, whether is it a straight walkway, is it simple, is it a path, is there a feature along the walkway that we might want to highlight, whether it's a really nice species of plant. Just use a Japanese maple, right? Because everybody knows that plant. Mm -hmm. Are you going to walk down this path and you're going to highlight this beautiful blood good or Takuma or Yatsubutsu Japanese maple? Or are we just going to go straight back there? Once we get back there, I don't like to overbuild. I find myself in today's market overbuilding because People have money to spend, it seems like, sometimes unlimited. And I feel like you can take an outdoor living space and make it feel like it's not intimate. It feels like everything's spread out. And I want it to be a center point. Like if you're over at the pavilion, you should be close enough or relative to the fire pit that you can enjoy people's company from all spaces but not feel crowded. Once I understand that, then I really start getting into the drawing process and thinking about the softscapes. You know, a lot of people, I like to know what their annual, I don't do maintenance, but I like to know what they can afford annually for maintenance. I feel like a lot of hardscapers don't ask that question. And the thing about it is people have budgets. And if you design this beautiful plant schedule, right, and you have this all these beautiful species and plants and you put it in and it's popping, but they can't afford, not because they don't want to, but they didn't budget to maintain it. Because people think plants, you put them in the ground and you just water them and nothing else. No, they need to be regularly pruned. They need to be taken care of. They're creatures. I make sure they can afford to take care of those plants in a proper way so that every time you come to that hardscape, it looks its best. Those plants have been pruned correctly. It's not overgrown because you can quickly have a beautiful space. And in five years, with somebody not understanding their requirements, it look like a terrible space. So with softscaping and then lighting, do they spend a lot of their time in the evenings? For instance, my family, we spend a lot of our time in the evening, so lighting's important to us. If they're on the coast where we deal with, uh, what are the bugs like? I know these are really simple things, but I just feel like when you're designing an outdoor living space, it's important to take in all these elements and really capture the entire space and the idea of what they're trying to do back, their uses. Once you get all that data, what do you do with it? So once I get the data, I give the customers homework. I feel like even if I get all those data points, I le- when I leave a consultation, they've been left three books or four, depending on if they're getting a pool or not. And then I make them send me an email and I I like to create accountability and I want them to tell me in their own words about their project. And then also I make them send me five page numbers from each book that I give them, which are hardscape books. I give them a Unilock book, a Block book, and a Marmiro book. And I ask them not to tell me what they like about it. I, I just want five page numbers. So I end up getting 15 page numbers and people are always like, well, why do you do that? Why do you not want me to tell you what I like about the page? I don't want any preconceived notions of what you're expecting. My job is not to give you what you want because you're not an outdoor living designer. I'm not just there to draw you a circular patio. I'm there to understand your goals and understand your lifestyle and how you're going to use the space. And I don't want a preconceived notion of what I should be building you. I want to be able to free think. That's how you build a beautiful space. When you have these, oh, I want this, I want that. Everybody comes out, put this here, put that there. No, show me a picture. Don't tell me what you like about it. All I'm trying to get a grasp of is your style. When I can look at a photo and you said, I like page five, it tells me your style on page five. 
I don't need to know that the fire pit in particular, because then I may build that fire pit. I don't want any type of preconceived stuff, if that makes sense. Well, once you've done that, do you design by computer or do you design by freehand or what? Yeah, so I like to use a computer because I'm a terrible hand drawer. I will take and I will model the house up. I prefer to do everything in 3D rendering Mm -hmm. unless we're just doing a planting plan. And then I will render everything up. And then I really, I like to start with the hardscapes and the structure and the pool. And then from there, I'll work on the planting schedule. Sometimes I'll do planters. Like I did some really nice bamboo planters recently because I like to keep bamboo contained. And I'll try to show pictures and images of what that can look like for reference. Then I present the 3D renderings. We do that over Zoom. We used to meet in person, but over the years uh, when COVID hit, we added to Zoom and I found out that Zoom is more helpful now because I can change things on the fly and show people the entire project quickly and switch screens when I'm referencing certain plant material and stuff. I want my customers to be engaged. And when I'm picking out the species, I want them to understand why I chose Dakota Gold Charm Spirea, right? Whether it's deciduous and I want it to lose its leaves or I'll go back to a red twig dogwood, right? You're probably familiar with that one, right? Yeah. So if I'm trying to create winter interest, I may have those up center where they lose their leaves. And now I've got the red twigs showing in the light during the winter because people still use their spaces in the winter versus using an evergreen there. I try to let the customer understand why the softscape is so critical because you can go out during the winter and your space still feel alive. And then in the spring, you want the space to be popping. You want lots of perennial color. You want things to be coming to life, encouraging you to get outside. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how I, I do it. You know, hardscape on its own, or at least concrete, painting walls and pavers, I found to be rather harsh. And then the softscapes soften the environment and to me, make it more livable. Yeah, 100%. And it's hard because I feel like where we're headed, what I've seen with the more modern designs is that people are getting away from as many plantings. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've noticed that people are shying away from plantings because people don't like maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Which is sad because you can have, man, it's amazing how much a good soft space brings the space to life. That's part of the design, though, is to create the low maintenance side of it. Do you find yourself thinking that way? I do. I hate the word low maintenance. I hate that. It's funny. I guarantee you, too, if you've been doing this long enough, the first thing out of their mouth is I want low maintenance. I would be shocked if every customer or 99% of your customers didn't tell you that. In my eyes, I just have found that you can design low maintenance. It is realistic to an extent, but plants live. They require care. Even with irrigation, I do try to pick species that are suitable for the client, you know, low maintenance. But I find that sometimes even those species can overwhelm a client. People think you just put them in the ground and bam, you know, I don't know how your clients are, but it seems like that way to me. Even liriope, right? (laughs) Like, okay, everybody knows liriope. And they'll be like, oh, you just put a bunch of liriope in there. Well, okay, well, don't cut off your liriope in February and let's see what they look like in the spring. They look like trash. They're all beat up, battered by the wind. They still require maintenance. Mm -hmm. I try not to tell my clients low maintenance. I don't like to use that. You know, everything requires maintenance. You brush your teeth every day. You you make your bed, whatever. You know, you got to take care of them, you know? Yeah, I usually say it's designed low maintenance, but it doesn't mean it's no maintenance. But you're just going to have a lot less to do than what you would. You're not paying attention to what you're selecting as plant material. Yep. How about the pools? What are you seeing as far as if you're thinking about a pool? What would you suggest on that? The biggest thing I would say with a pool right now is a very strange market. People are staying home. A lot of people are working from home. So I think people are getting a lot more utility out of their yard. I think that's why we're so busy and guys like yourself are so busy. People want to be home. I think having the pool 
and having the outdoor living space around the pool and the softscape and all that, it, it's now just a lifestyle. You'll see a lot of the top builders in the country are now incorporating pools in their build. So with pools, I think if you're thinking about getting one, it's a solid investment. I think there's a timeline that is taking a while to get pools. I will tell you that in my opinion, right now, pools are more of a chilling and relaxing spot. There's not a lot of swimming. Most of the clients that are picking a shell are they're picking for splash pads or tanning ledges or benches. They're hanging out more in the pool as opposed to doing aquatic activities, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think that pools are becoming part of the hardscape in the essence that you can sit out in your pool, be chilling, and you got guests underneath your pavilion and you're looking on your plants and your fire pit or whatever the case may be. It just brings the space all together. It's just your own oasis, essentially, by putting a pool there. It's obviously, it increases the budget. I think that you're going to see more trend towards dip pools. Are you familiar with those? Not necessarily the term. I, mean, I can imagine what it is. Yeah, it's just basically a smaller pool. You'll get a 13 by 20 or a 13 by 16 pool. You know, you get in there, you hang out, you cool off a little bit, sit in the bench. When I'm designing these smaller places, I'm even trying to encourage people to go with a smaller dip pool or even if they don't have kids, I'm finding my older couples are enjoying heater chillers in them and they're not a hot tub, but you can get in them a lot more. They can regulate the temperature because they're smaller and they're still big enough where you don't feel like you're on top of each other. So I think you're going to see more trend in the market to have these closer, tighter outdoor living spaces and these small dip pools. Are you still seeing hot tubs or are those kind of going out or are they staying popular? Yes, they're super popular. Popular. I do built-in hot tubs, but I still prefer that the customer, they get a standalone unit. They're insulated better. It's a built-in hot tub is 20 grand and they're not insulated as well. And I feel like a standalone unit designed in a hardscape and softscape environment can look just as nice as a built-in unit. And I've seen a lot of guys and I've done the several that they kind of encase those standalone units in freestanding wall with some stairs and they look really nice. I don't have a lot of grade to play with in my area. We're mostly flat. Flatland. I mean, there is some areas, but mostly flatland. So I like when you can incorporate a retaining wall, maybe the hot tub into the side of the grade and put like almost like a freestanding wall that acts as a veneer essentially in front of it and dress it up. You know, I just think that our industry is probably in, is one of the best places it, it, it's going to be. I personally think it's going to be even better for the foreseeable future because I feel like people are creating these sanctuaries. That's why I got into taking on the pools where I was just a hardscape contractor and a softscape contractor. I really got into the pools because I, I want to create that one-stop oasis and fiberglass is extremely easy to put in. Most of your pools are fiberglass? Yeah. I tell everybody, if you see our page and it's a fiberglass pool, we put it in. If it's a vinyl, which I'm not a big fan of, we have another sub that basically I'll draw the whole design for them and then people want a bigger pool. So the limitation with fiberglass is, and it's good for people to know this that are looking at a pool, the limitation with fiberglass is your size is going to be no bigger than for 16 by 40. So a lot of times when I'm doing a vinyl pool, it's because it, they wanted a bigger, they wanted a 40 by 40 by 30 foot wide or 40 by 20 foot wide. You'll see a lot of vinyl. In our area, you see quite a bit of concrete. That doesn't fit my build business model because of the build schedules associated with vinyl. I'm not a fan of vinyl. Concrete, the build schedule is long versus a fiberglass. I can do an entire package, come into a $150,000 job for somebody, pop a pool in the ground. My excavation crew digs out bases around them and then sets footers for the pavilion or whatever we're building. My wood crew is doing the pavilion and my hardscape guys are laying coping and doing the pavers and features and then softscaping afterwards. So it works for our business. 
business model. Yeah. We'll talk about pavilions and what you're seeing in those. There's more trend right now towards pavilions. Pergolas used to be or that more craftsman and ornamental. Years ago, we're putting up a lot of pergolas. They were thinking that was a go-to shade structure. And they do good if you put multiple louvers. But I felt like over the years that pavilions are a lot more effective. They do cost a little bit more, but they could put a fireplace under the pavilion, even a gas fire pit if the ceiling height is a certain height. And it gives your friends and family a place to get in the shade. A lot of times we'll put umbrella curtains and they can draw the curtains on a cool night and have the fire pit going or the fireplace going and they can really encapsulate that space and have their family out there and enjoy, you know, if they have outdoor kitchen under it. It's good protection. The other things is there's a lot of pavilion kits on the market by the Amish that are really good. We do a lot of kit pavilions and structures. And even the average homeowner, if the hardscaper comes in and adds footers for you or pours footers, they can come back later and install a pavilion on those. Or the hardscape landscape contractor that didn't have a ton of building experience can now do that for you and you can use a one-stop contractor. So I think that the way pavilion kits have come along in the industry and what is offered, it, it allows the contractor contractor to be more versatile and offer their clients more. Even if you have something that's a 14 by 16 or something small, it's total protection. Pergolas, they're fantastic. I still do a lot of them, but to me, they're more architectural and craftsman style. They add a certain element to the project, but they don't provide a lot of protection in my eyes. For not much more money, you can have a roof over it. How do you see lighting working to your projects? I get a lot of clients and they say, hey, I want to cut out lighting from the budget or they're looking to cut costs. And to me, that's the last thing you cut. You're better off making the project smaller. The average project, realistically, for most consumers is thirty to 50000 Don't get me wrong. They're smaller ones. You spend all this money on this beautiful space and then you don't do lighting or you're even on the fence about lighting. You cut down on the amount of use you're going to get from your space if you don't have light. Lighting, right? I tell my clients, listen, we're going to cut anywhere but the lighting. If you got to cut the seating wall, you have to bring the space to life. You wouldn't use your house without the lights in it. You're not going to use your outdoor living space without the lights. And sure, if you have a pool, you're going to be more apt to be out there during the bright of the day, the heat of the day. Realistically, a lot of these people are getting home from work. It's starting to get dark outside. They're firing up the fire pit, having a glass of wine with their wife, their kids. They're sitting under their pavilion. They're soaking up the remaining part of the day. They need the lighting. You want it to feel warm. You want it to feel like it's immersive. I try to, you know, really make sure I create shadows with the lighting. I accent certain pieces. I use bamboo a lot when I contain it because I love the way it wisps in the wind. I'll throw a wash light on it up against the fence with a bamboo planter. And the wisping in the wind is so relaxing when you come home and you're able to sit out there and you see these shadows dancing on the fence or you've got a special piece of art somebody gave you and it's highlighted or you're under your pavilion and you've got the light shining in the eaves. I think that lighting is so critical on a project that it should never be left out. Yeah. You're multiplying the time that you can use your space. hundred percent. And it's a different dimension from the daytime. It's like a whole new garden. It is. I think certain plants look certain ways, you know, just like we talked about with the red twig dogwoods, man. I mean, they come to life. Put in a system by Luminaire FX, they color change. So it's really cool. You can now for the seasons and the holidays with light, we did a schedule for them where like in Valentine's Day, they might put up pink lights all on their house or pink lights on the shrub. When their favorite 
football teams playing, which this client was the Baltimore Ravens. They had gold and purple lights that would shine on football night or for the holidays, red and green lights. And you can do it all from your phone now. There's so much versatility with outdoor lighting. The great thing about having a low voltage system, I tell this to my customers all the time. You know, I won't throw anything less than a 300 watt transformer in because I don't care what size project you're getting a 300 watt transformer or bigger if I need it, but normally I don't. Because let's say that you want quick light over to your trash can pad or by your pool pumps, or you just happen to walk out to the mailbox at night and you want a light out there. I can run a 12-2 wire almost anywhere with three or four watts and I can create a light for you or your kids or your wife that's going out to check the trash at night. There's so many different things with lighting that people just overlook the fact that it's just for your landscape. You can complement spaces in your yard I know you've been to check the mail at night or you've been out to check on something. You're like, boy, it's dark over here. So I use mine in that way too. It's more of a secure feeling when you've got the light. Agree. Yeah, that's a great point. You're exactly right. Lights are so versatile and they're so inviting. I tell this story all the time. I've been in the current house I'm in four years. We built it and it's our dream house. I did all the lighting, of course. I have a beautiful walkway coming up with a water feature you go to. And the power went off one night and somehow reset my transformer, right? And I don't know what happened. And I had the lights on. I'd been there two years. I just love coming to my house at night and seeing the lights up, seeing how beautiful it looks. Well, this night I was coming home and power flickered off. I didn't know it happened. I drove right past my own house. (laughs) I didn't even realize because I was always looking for that beautiful welcome home. said, wait a minute, I just drove past my house. But it was completely dark, you know? Uh-huh. When you come home or you're getting off from a long day, especially this time of the year, you come home and it's dark. Man, nothing says welcome home like a bunch of uplights shining on your house and telling you to pull in here, you know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> The system you're talking about where the lights are changing with the seasons to the different colors, do you see those systems getting less expensive or are they still going to be a really high price point? I think they're already much less expensive. I think that it depends on what you feel is the best utility. And when I say utility, you look at FX, big company in the market, and their utility on their app and the way their system works is very different Mm -hmm. from a lot of the manufacturers. It's very immersive. You can do everything from your phone. Once you set it up, the transformer knows where those lights are versus now that system is very, very expensive. Then you look at a system like Encore Landscape Lighting, right? We use a lot of Encore. Great product. You can buy buy from them if you're a, a landscaper. And they have bulbs that you can literally take out mm-hmm. your bulb and your light fixture. Now it has to fit and plug in a RGB bulb, which is a colored bulb. And then you walk around with their app on your phone and you can change the light from your phone to that light within a certain proximity. Now, you have to walk around to every light and change it, right? But you also are not paying an arm and a leg. You might just pay $60, $70 for the bulb and the app's free. And now you're using your regular transformer. So even if you want to upgrade, say that you have a retainer wall front and you want to you know, have a customer that can do something a little interesting if they have a party at St. Patrick's Day or Halloween, you can go take those bulbs, put them in the fixture a couple of days before the party, walk out there you know, when you're in proximity and set all the bulbs to green or whatever color spectrum you want. So I think as far as cost, we're there. I think the sacrifice is a little bit of utility. That makes sense. There's a product for everybody. Take my wife, for example. She has no problem going out there and setting her colors up and doing that. We have a few of those bulbs in our yard. 
When you're talking about path lights, there is more than one path light. People see bollards and they see these pagoda style path lights. Man, there are so many interesting path lights for a few bucks more create interest. That's an element in the landscape. I wish contractors and homeowners would look at their fixtures like they would at their house. It does take time and it comes at a cost to the landscaper and they need to be understanding that that's a process, but they can really pick out a nice fixture. I mean, I have some awesome fixtures in my house that look cool. They serve as a light, but also a decorative piece that were only a few dollars more. So I would also encourage when doing lighting that you look at the availability of fixtures. There's so many neat things to dress up your outdoor living space with just the fixture itself. Give us an example of that. If you look at WAC, that's one of the biggest ones that like had some really unique outdoor lighting features. And they have this one called the Curve, and it comes up and it curves like a wave over the path. So you can set it back on your path and it curves up over top and it's shedding light on the plant, reaching from behind the plant and then spreading light onto the walkway. Beautiful light, really cool light. And then you have lights that look more like an old school waterman's lantern where they come up in an arch, they hang from a chain and they look more like a glass bulb with real lantern style. Just different lights that don't have the standard path light or a bowler or taking your walkway and recessing lights in the ground, in lights that look like a little path with a movie theater or something like that. There's a lot of interesting elements you can do that, yes, it provides light, but the light itself is an element, if that makes sense. It does. More with Jordan and bringing your outdoor spices to life after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. What do you wish people would do differently when designing and building and growing a garden? As far as doing differently, I think that it's a touchy subject for me. People get hemmed up on budget over the minor details. You know, they want to save two to three hundred when you could do something very unique and simple on the project. For instance, trying to cut off a certain step or path or making an alternate route through a landscape. These little subtle elements is what I like to call them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Just even throwing up a privacy trellis with one screen on it and throwing maybe some Carolina jasmine and highlighting it. People try to cut out the aspects that bring life to the project. They're easy to cut. And I understand everybody has a budget. I wish if I could change anything, you can show people on a 3D rendering. As passionate as I am, I feel like when I talk to people, I love my industry and I try to be passionate. I wish that people would be understanding in the things that are small elements and small features that bring the space to life. Right. I just wish they would be more understanding. And I also wish that our industry, we're not looked at as professionals. And I mean that in such a a non-negative way. If you were to go to the doctor or if you were to talk to your general contractor for your house and he told you it had to be this way or you want it this way, you would rarely argue with your doctor. You would rarely say this because you feel like he knows exactly what he's talking about. And and landscape and hardscape professionals are not grass cutters. People, they get this thought where they associate us with, oh, they're, they're green professionals, they're, they're lawn care, they're, landscape, they're landscapers, they're landscapers. No, there's a difference between a design build firm, a true landscaper, it's art, it's artscape. I wish that the general public would respect our trade more and look at what it brings to the table. It is such a, an interesting part of your house and what you can have. I wish they just put a little bit more respect on it, if that makes sense. It does.
Tell us a funny garden story or landscape-related story. I've been fortunate to work with some really, really cool clients. Funniest story to date is when I own my maintenance firm. I was... I despise maintenance now, not not because I love maintaining my own yard. I enjoy it, but it, it was a lot of work. You deal with a lot of different people. But when I first started out in the industry, you know, we all, a lot of us started out mowing grass. Maybe you did too, maybe not. I had two guys I just hired, and I was kind of thought I was the big guy. You know, I was man, I'm I'm making it. You know, and I was I was riding the passenger seat, and I had one of my guys driving me, and we'd all get out, and I'd like to show my guys that I would do anything they would do too. I was weed eating that day. I was weed eating around this yard and going crazy and smelled poop. Well, they had a dog and I figured, eh, you know, it's probably just the yard. I looked at my shoes, stopped weeding, walking around, you know, kept smelling poop, got to the front, probably about 15 minutes. I grabbed the blower, I blow off and put everything up. And I'm like, man, I don't know why I keep smelling poop. So I get in the truck and my buddy, Justin, he just gets in. He'd been mowing. I was weed eating. I look over at him and all of a sudden he goes, ah, poop. You got poop all over your face. And I said, oh, my God. And I, and I didn't realize that the turd had hit me on the face from weeding. And that's what I was smelling the whole time. And sure enough, they were all freaked out. We're jumping out of the truck. I'm trying to get the poop off me. It was just the neighbors are looking at us like we're crazy, you know. Oh, and- that's a great one. <laughs> uh, oh, man. What's your earliest garden memory? You know, that's that's actually a great question. One of my favorites. So my Nana was an avid gardener, vegetable gardener and planting gardens. Matter of fact, uh, are you familiar with lace leaf hydrangeas? Yeah. One of my favorite species. I know it sounds crazy for a man to say, but they're gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous plant. Just light green with a white stripe around them. There's several lace leaf species, but just beautiful variegation. My Nana used to plant them like they were going out of style. And as a child, I used to think they were such a cool plant. I love the fact that the variegation was was very regular. It wasn't like that of a liriope of certain species, you know, you want them. It was just, just a beautiful plant and it would put off these blooms. And, and that's really when I started getting interested in the plants. And and my Nana would create these secret gardens. We didn't have a lot of money. And so she would have to reroute stuff. I mean, taking a hydrangea and burying half the twig in the ground while it's still connected to the plant. So it would establish a root. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with that technique and digging them up and moving them around. And we would just create our own spaces from um, stuff people would give us or we dig up on the side of the road and she was just so humble about it man she could make anything look cool you know that's where i realized that it didn't matter how much money you had to spend on a space and maybe not when i was a kid i realized this but now when i look back i think about it, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on a space if you can't create it correctly or make it intimate uh, it won't feel like a good space. And I saw that, you know, from my childhood when she would take her time with the littlest materials, materials that didn't make sense. You know, she'd get these rocks, these pea gravel, or she'd find these Alaskan globes, these glass globes that they would use for these crab pots. And they were glass. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Mm-hmm. And she would make these decorative features in the garden and these bird baths. And we'd take pine straw and just dress things up with just everyday stuff in the yard. And that's what really got me interested. And I'm so thankful for her. She's an amazing woman. She's 80 seven now she just really got me into gardening and enjoying it so there's a lot of inspiration and you got some of her creative genes i think so she and my grandfather they raised me and i would say that 
you know, my grandfather worked all the time and that's what their generation did. Mm -hmm. She stayed home and my mom had me at a young age and then she raised me and I got to experience all that stuff that she built over the summers helping her. And still to this day, she's just such a patient woman. And I think that when you're hardscaping and you're landscaping, that patience is an invaluable trade. Being able to pick something up and move it twice. I can't tell you how many times I plant a plant and I'm like, I look at it, I'll put it in the ground and let's say the foliage is off on one side. And my guys will tell me, man, put it in the ground, Jordan. You're worried about it. And I, I always stress to them, man, you got to get the angle right. Sit the pot in there right. Break the roots up. Make sure it looks good. What does the foliage look like on this side? I just learned a lot of that from her. Just having patience with the plant and not giving up on them. Mm -hmm. And I got to see them fill out over the years. You know, a lot of the guys don't start early in the trade and they don't understand the whole tiered approach and the English garden. And she was very into that. So I got to see a lot of different elements of gardening at a young age. Explain the tier approach for us. I have a landscape designer that's great at this. She's a friend of mine, Laura Palmino, and she's in New Jersey. And, and the tier approach is creating layers, right? Whether you're using perennials or evergreens or something deciduous, and you have these different heights, you might have something that's purple up front with a light green in the middle that's slightly taller. And then you could have some coneflower or something that's breaching over that. And in the back, not far from it, tall evergreen, cypress or something in that nature. And, and just creating these layers and depths where you look onto the landscape and see different species and what they offer. And the thing with tiering is they could be blooming at different times. You could have spirea, right? Gold mound spirea. Is, there's many types of spirea, but one that I really love is Dakota Gold Charm. It's yellow and then it'll get these chartreuse pink flowers. Mm -hmm. When it's by itself, it looks amazing. It stays small. It's gold. Then I would have a plant behind it that's a green that's blooming when it's not blooming. And then when the plant behind it is not blooming, the gold charm are now putting on their pink chartreuse. Just trying to create depth to the project. And I know I'm going off on a tangent, but then you even look at textures when you're layering things out. Is it a woody ornamental? Is it a stiff leaf? Is it waxy? Is it soft? There's just these textures and elements that need to be taken in consideration when you're doing a planting and layering that can make the project or break the project. And the other thing to be said about that is you can do overkill. You know, you put a huge cluster of ivy somewhere or you put something that's going to overgrow the space. You got to be careful with tiering. You need to really look at the species and that's when you really need to seek out a professional or do a lot of homework, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure does. So you're planning where everything is growing together. Or are you individually doing that? That really is going to be dependent on the client. I will tell you, it's very sad to say that I'm not doing near as much tiering and layering as I would like to be doing, mainly because what we talked about earlier, there is a different type of maintenance associated with that. I think you would agree. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm finding that a lot of clients now want a more minimalistic approach, especially when we see these modern trends. It'll be a lot of grasses or something that's very basic and easy to maintain. So it's of my opinion, the project looks better with tiering and layering and textures. And, and I do try to draw that way, but I feel like the consumer today, it's really dependent on their lifestyle. You know, much of my older clients that are starting to hit retirement age and are spending more time at home will opt for that where my younger clients, they just don't have the time. In today's society, you find that most people both work, the husband and the wife, and have three kids or whatever the case may be, and they don't have the time to maintain or they may not want to hire to maintain that kind of tiered English garden look. Yeah. Do you think that's more intimidating to the younger client? I think that's very accurate. I think mainly because they don't understand. I think you're right in saying it's, it's more intimidating than anything. 
honestly, proper perennial planting is the easiest thing to maintain. I mean, you chop them down and let them go, you know? And I just think that they get intimidated. I think people want to see a lot of color, Mm -hmm. but they get discouraged. They have something that doesn't go well or they give up easily. If you spend the money and invest in a good designer to to come up with a a concept for you, that you can have a lot of results with a perennial, nice tiered planting with some evergreens and it'd be very minimalistic for the maintenance. I, I don't know how you feel. To me, I like to go with plant it and let it grow. Just let it do its thing and look at the space that it's going to occupy and make sure you don't put something in there that's going to overgrow its space because then that's when your maintenance comes in, at least as far as pruning. And then as far as the mulch, I look at it, it's just building the soil. Yeah. So I like to use more of a ground up byproducts of trees and then mulch that and it'll decay and it'll get the biological action going in the soil. You pretty much got a sustaining plant then as long as it doesn't overgrow its location. I don't like to come in with shears. Do you see shearing a lot in your area? I do. I hate it. I, I'm, I'm exactly. You ever heard the term crate murder? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I just despise that. Like I get I just you want to really make me upset as crate murder. I, I mean, you know that you're supposed to maintain the canopy and, and I hate shearing plants. Shearing plant is because you put it in the wrong location. Yeah. I I completely agree with what you're saying. I I do think that it's something to be said about a more rustic. You know, when we talk about hardscapes, when we talk about what you're looking for in a design, I think you can get away more of that fullness and not overgrown is the wrong word, but a more full and lush look with a more rustic planting. I do feel like that's harder to do with a more modern planting, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think that when people see modern, they expect things to look perfect. That's the only discrepancy I have with modern is there's these unrealistic expectations that a modern design and a modern planting is supposed to look 100% uniform all the time. And I got news for people, plants do not look 100% and uniform all the time. They're never going to. Right, right. Because one of them may be in shade and the other one's in full sun or the soil may be filled and the other side of the planting may be in a cut in the ground. So you've got really hard soil versus really loose soil. That'll affect it. Yeah, 100%. You know, I'm big on the social media. I try to post a lot on my stories and with the creation of social media, they think everything's perfect, whether it's lifestyles, whether it's the product. There's discrepancies. Anything outdoors is going to have some discrepancy in some way. Don't get me wrong. We all try to build to a perfect standard. It's not realistic in the elements. Exactly what you said with plants. I do think that with a more rustic style design, you can have a better looking planting in my eyes. You're talking about pet peeves. One of the pet peeves I've got is where, so you see uh, plantings of trees, and they're used more like architectural features rather than the trees that they are. And they're, they're planted on a grid pattern and is irritating to me to see like a checkerboard. Every black space has that plant on it. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Oh, it makes, yeah, you see it a ton in new HOAs plantings. See these developers come in and HOA, I think that's what you're talking about anyway. You see it and it's just like pop, 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 one after the other. It doesn't feel natural at all. That's nuts. I mean, I'm sure that the maintenance guys are in love. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how your city is, but the municipalities, the requirements they're putting in for vegetation, I don't know how we're going to sustain maintenance companies around here because they're putting in so many plants. Our maintenance companies, you you see these beautiful neighborhoods and the plants and everything look terrible because they can't even keep up with the trimming. There's so much trimming and maintaining out there. These big neighborhoods, they can't find the manpower to take care of them. I mean, don't get me wrong. A lot of them look beautiful. Some of them look 
ridiculous like we're talking, but they just require so many plants and species in a commercial application. It doesn't even look right. It looks so out of place. Well, this is something that I've observed. Plant material supplies, you can't get what you want when you need it a lot of time, and especially in a planned community. And they're have a hedge that's going along the sidewalk and you only want that hedge to be maybe 24 inches 30 inches high or something like that but they're putting plants like a japanese anise which wants to grow 20 feet high there's no way they're going to maintain that i see that kind of stuff where they're just sticking plants in to meet the requirement for the moment and not looking at what the long run looks like it's crazy i mean you you hit the nail on that i see it all the time it drives me crazy the one thing i i'll say to that is that's what makes guys like us special i mean i used to get frustrated People that are thinking about hiring a contractor or landscape designer in their area, look for somebody who's passionate. Look for somebody who knows the species. Even if it costs you a little more, the long term, you're going to get a better end result and a better product. It makes such a big difference, whether it's pavers, pavilion, the pool. If they're not as interested and as passionate about your project as you are, Trust me when I tell you it's no different than going to McDonald's. You're going to get the same hamburger, pickles, lettuce, onions. It's not going to be anything spectacular or special. And the chances of it being perfect are slim to none. Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession and the outdoor space profession? I did all that stuff like I told you with my Nana when I was young. And I loved it. Took great care of my own yard. And it's crazy as a young guy, and not that I'm old, when I started, I got out of high school and I, I wanted to become a paramedic and work EMS and stuff like that. I went to school for that and I got into that field, fire and EMS. We worked two days a week. So I had a lot of free time and I got a job at the children's hospital. I did that for four years and it really took its toll on me. And I just didn't enjoy seeing the, the sad things that were done to kids. And I enjoyed being outdoors. And, and I didn't even realize that it was my true passion. And if I was to go back, I probably went to school for landscape contracting or landscape architect, but I don't know that I would have the same end result like I do now. I actually developed this passion out of luck. I really feel like I got lucky when I was able to work EMS and get into maintenance and start to build my company and then learn about the species. I'm self-taught and then I've been to a lot of schools and I have a lot of certifications now, but it's taken a long time and a lot of state certificates and took a lot of state tests on it. I learned everything from scratch. I just didn't even realize I had the passion. I would literally look through the catalog of my nursery that puts out and I would just look at plants. Like I was looking through a parts catalog for an auto, somebody that likes auto parts or something like cars. And I just be like, oh man, look at this new Encore Azalea. Look at this new, whatever it was, Cuba, you know, they might have picturata, something like that. And I would just say, man, that's a cool looking species. And I just wanted to design with them. I thought they were cool. And I would read about their habits and I would try to design. So I think maybe year two of looking through these catalogs and learning about pavers. And I just realized, man, there's no way that this is not my passion. A, I love it. And I don't think everybody's reading books about an Akuba Picturata. I think I got lucky. And now I know how passionate I'm about the industry. And and honestly, when I go places now, it's funny. And I hope it continues this way. And I'm very thankful for all my clients. I really feel like now where I am and as much as I love my trade, I'm interviewing my clients. A lot of times people think they're interviewing you. You come out there, look at the yard, but I am so passionate and comfortable with what I do now that I want to work with people 
who share the same similarities of their end result of their, of their yard, if that makes sense. I want to come to a house and I want them to want me to be there because they feel I'm the right guy for the job. Not because they want a price or they want the most effective or the most efficient because we're extremely efficient. We're good at those things. My crew is. But I want them to pick us because they feel as passionate as I do about their outdoor living space. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Uh, I got a lot of them, and they probably don't know. This guy, Matt Heiner, uh, Heiner Outdoor Living, which is on the other side of the coast, such an inspirational builder, just watching the way he uses his elements. I encourage you to check it out. He's in one of my masterminds group, my peer groups, and we talk a little bit, but we don't know each other well, but just watching how thorough is and how his builds are. And his end goal is always about the space. It's never about getting in and just putting stuff in the ground. He thinks about every element. He's also got a YouTube channel. We have to check that out. He's one of my biggest influencers. My grandparents are my biggest influencers just because they were so appreciative of what I did. My Nana loves my design. She loves the work because obviously she was passionate about it. But my grandfather just always wanted to see me be successful and be happy. It doesn't really correlate necessarily right to the industry, but just having that support, they would influence me to do well and to keep being as proactive and always trying to do the best that I can. And to me, that's the big part of it. Yeah. There's nothing like having encouragers in your life. There's a lot of ton of uh, great builders out there and designers, but there's a lot of guys out here in my local area get a paycheck and there's nothing wrong with that. They're good people. They're trying to put plants in the ground. They're trying to build hardscapes and they are and they're in their maintaining properties and they serve a niche. I wanted to make people's dreams come true. I wanted them to walk back in a space and go, man, this is exactly what I was thinking. This feels intimate. And I, I use the word sexy and, and, and some people so that sounds sounds silly, but I want to look at certain spaces and say, man, that's sexy. Look at that. It's just everything flows, the lines, the curves, feels good. You know, don't get me wrong. I didn't my first projects, if you look back on my social media, you know, I post a lot on Instagram. Look back back when I owned my maintenance firm, Curry took lawn care. Look, we were starting out. I think another thing is people think that you just all of a sudden know all this and all of a sudden you build these wonderful spaces. I'll get people that message me and they say, man, how do you get these big projects? And I've been doing this a long time and I'm learning every day. You don't learn about lines and curves and filling tears in. That doesn't happen overnight. You have to be dedicated to your profession. You have a lot of trial error. If you think I haven't pulled plants out of the ground and had to replace them because I put the wrong species in the wrong area, yeah, I've done it. I've been there. I was embarrassed, but I was honest and trustworthy. And I came back and I needed to fix something that I later learned was wrong. I always went back and did it. At the end of the day, you need to make sure you're providing a service to your client that you are willing to stand behind. And even if you have to go back and fix something, that's okay. That's part of growth and learning. You will get to where you're going. Taking on the pools and the new stuff, every day we're learning. Well, what is your most valuable garden mistake? Drainage. (laughs) (laughs) Say don't underestimate drainage. Man, I love drainage now. Drainage is very intimidating to learn properly, super overlooked, especially when you have lots of plantings and walls and, you know, different things like that, you know, whatever, even in a regular yard. I think that a lot of people go, oh, water goes downhill. Well, yeah, it goes downhill until there's nowhere for it to go downhill to. In that case, you have to deal with it. 
laying on flat ground where I'm at, sometimes you have to sump water uphill to a discharge point, or I like to create dry streams where during a heavy rain, there might be a beautiful dry stream element that filters the water down that and allows for passage. So I think the biggest challenge for me, even to this day, is making sure there's proper drainage. You want to talk about ruining a beautiful project, have a bunch of standing water somewhere or holding water or mucky grass or a mucky environment. That'll sour a client's stomach, even your own, or maybe not the plants to grow, or, you know, God forbid, you don't get the pitch right on the patio, which thankfully we don't have those issues. You can really have a beautifully designed space and not execute it well and the function not make sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can flow water to the wrong places and hopefully not into basement or something like that, or you can cause a retaining wall to fail if you don't flow that water correct. Drainage is critical. Name mistakes, man. I can't tell you. Everybody's embarrassed to say that they were wrong. I meet so many guys when I go to this site one or stop by there and like, they don't want to admit that they were wrong or defeated or the project didn't come out. I don't care what trade you're in. People make mistakes. It's okay. It's acknowledgement and getting better that what makes the industry grow. And that's what's going to make us accreditation for professionals in our industry. Mistakes are just part of life and growth process. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. <laughs> in my garden, I have every plant imaginable. <laughs> Tell us about it. I think, I think for me, if my wife, if she was here, she'd say, guys, if this man would stop bringing home plants, I still to this day will go to the garden center and see a cool species, you know, because they constantly are doing hybrids or something. And I'm ashamed to even say this. I'll bring it home and say, I'm going to plant that. And then I'll be so busy. I won't plant it. And then it dies. And I hate to even say that because I love plants. In my garden, I have everything. You know, I always want to experiment. I want to see what the growth habits are. I'll trim things in weird ways. I've learned some really cool things to do with planters that I don't necessarily get to do at clients' houses all the time because they either exnay that small part of it because of what we talked about, about the little details. In my garden, I have everything. I, and I'm embarrassed to say my planting, if people were to come over to my house, they would probably say, boy, that's not as nice as some of his other projects. And it's mainly because I'm just interested about the plant, more not about the uniformity and the flow and the design. I'm just interested in the species. It probably sounds silly to a lot, but I'm just trying to experiment more than anything in my garden. Well, what are some of the cool things you're doing with containers? I just think containers are on the rise, mainly because of the modern planning. People have always done really cool pots. They do like creeping Jenny or sweet potato vine, and they do some type of grasses or drop a, a tropical, some canna lilies to get some height, something like that in it. But I think you're going to see more planters because it contains it and people can maintain it. I think if you run irrigation to a planter and set it up with the proper soils and holes and drainage, you can really do some cool things in containers that won't overwhelm people where they're able to have that same interest, but not a ton of beds in their yard, if that makes sense. More of a minimalistic approach while still enjoying plants. The other cool thing is with pots, you can limit the size of a species and then trim it or prune it like a Pieris. Are you familiar with Pieris? Mm -hmm. Yes. So flaming Pieris is a beautiful species, beautiful plant. I've got one in a planter and they get rather big Pieris. It's contained in the planter and I've kind of trimmed it out to almost look like a tree. Do I recommend that for everybody? No, I don't. But you can have some really cool specimens that draw interest to your outdoor living space that you can have some fun with. Water them, you take care of them, you trim them, you keep them in a cool shape and people will come over and ask me about them. Do I have a, a museum of really neat looking plants? No, I don't want it to look gaudy but I think in the right setting you can utilize planters to have really cool species and, and also I have some five foot planters I do very quite often and use those as privacy screens 
proteins with large plants in those. And then it maintains the growth. You could do arborvitaes in them or junipers or bamboo, and they are heavy and the wind won't blow them over and they will work as a green privacy head. So are you pre-planting those for clients or do you plant them on site? Plant them on site, mainly because they can get heavy. I formed some stuff up, formed up the concrete in the planters and vibrated and stamped it on the outside or whatever, you know, real or veneered it, made it like a garden wall, done stuff like that. You could do some small planters. When I owned the maintenance firm, I would send out planters for fall, mums and things like that and allow them to pick some smaller planters that you can carry around. But when I'm talking planters, I'm talking something a little bit more substantial that needs to be filled on site. I'll get the clients involved and we'll set aside a budget for that and we'll pick a few planters and we'll fill them out. Use a lot of creeping Jenny and planters because it sprawls off the side. Sweet potato vine, if they're into annuals, use a lot of that in planters. Almost layering in a planter, if you will. There's just so many different things you can do with a planter. And then they draw an art aspect to it because of the pot. You pick a really beautiful pot. That's nice too. And you can even put a light up in them, do a water feature with them. I've done some urns that have water that bubbles out the top. You know, no planter, but it was an urn with like pondless water features. It sounds crazy. I can sit here and talk about it for days. The industry is so cool. There's so many elements that you can do that just make you feel at peace with your yard and your space and and really unwind you, you know? You've referred back to the art of design. Where do you think you developed that? Did that come natural or did you intentionally go out to learn the art side of this? No, I have no formal training. Learning and improving every day. I would say natural. I enjoy it so much that I'm willing to spend a lot of time on the designs. Like, you know, we charge for our designs, but I'll redraw stuff maybe three or four times before I present it to the client. Not all the time. I play with a lot of different lines, textures, and I'll say, well, I like this. I'll sit on it for a day or two, make sure I like it. Because I don't have necessarily formal training. I will look at a lot of books and stuff. I've got some landscape architects. I mentioned Laura Palmino. She's extremely talented. She has formal training and her dad owns a big, big landscape firm and he's a landscape architect. And they're just, I look at inspiration from those projects and try to put my own flair on them. I think the other thing is you can't be afraid to express yourself. I think that a lot of guys are worried about what's going to look good to others. You should worry about your client, but I'm saying they are worried about making it look like just the typical plant, you know, turn this arch here, do this, the typical stuff. Be creative, express yourself, put elements in there, let it be unique. You'd be surprised how many things come out cool that you're scared to try. And then you do them, you're like, man, you end up doing them 10 more times. And the other thing with plantings is there's some consistency with some of these plantings. You know, a lot of these houses follow similar shapes. And once you develop your style per se, it can be uniformly done on a multitude of projects. Does every project have to be the same? No, but you can use similar styles and layout. What's your favorite plant? Man, you would ask me that. <laughs> I don't know that. That's that's going to be a tough one. I'm inclined to say spirea just because there's so many cool types of spirea. A lot of people would say, why is your favorite plant spirea? Probably a lot of people don't understand that because it's not a very interesting plant, but it's just, to me, bulletproof. You know, Anthony Wibner or whatever the, the variety is, there's a lot of different colors and tones and size. You can do a lot with it. I really like that plant. As far as trees, I have several Japanese maples I like. Yatsubutsa, that's one of my favorite ones. Really cool looking plant. I don't know. I don't really have a favorite. I will say that I think I go through phases. I am a big fan of Carl Forster grass. I would... I get hung up on certain looks sometimes. What else should I have asked you? 
I don't know. I thought it was good. I've enjoyed it. I love the industry, man. I, I enjoy talking about it. I really hope that people can see value. We do. I think that you're going to see in the next five, 10 years that outdoor living is just part of the overall house build. Tell us about your company and how people could connect with you. You can look us up on the web, Evolve Design Build LLC. I do think that social media platforms are kind of the way of life now, and that's where most people connect. Facebook, Evolve Design Build. Instagram is probably my preferred platform as far as following me. I try to do stories about our projects every day. You can always hit me up on there. Messages. Uh, happy to talk to anybody, even if they got a question. When I was new into this industry and trying to get into it, I was probably the most annoying person to deal with. I asked every question. You can always call our office too if you're a client looking for a consultation or you want a drawing. I'm happy to help you out. We do have quite a bit of a lead time. Uh, our office manager would love to help anybody and set up a consultation. This has been episode 35, bringing your outdoor spaces to life with Jordan Banneker. Jordan, thank you. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.